today we have uh, three readings from the book of Job, um, beginning on page 538 in your pew Bibles. Uh, and this is um, Job 38, verses 1 to 7, page 538. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Uh, the next section is 40, so that's over the page. Verse 115, page 540. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can, you, can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at the behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. And then the last section is 42 verses 1 to 6 on page 542. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The word of the Lord. Good evening. Let's try that again. Good evening. Thank you. Uh, if I've not met you, my name is Becca. I've been coming to HT for about eight years. Uh, I used to be on the staff team, uh, and then I had my two children, and I've been a full-time mum ever since. 
And uh, yeah, it's six o'clock, so this is a real treat for me to be out this late. <laughs> Crazy times. Uh, tonight we are continuing our sermon series on people in prayer, people in prayer. And tonight, as you may have gathered from our Bible reading, it's the turn of Job. So let's pray as we start. Would you join me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you um, that it has so much to teach us. And we invite you here tonight by your Holy Spirit. Would you just come? Would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds? Would you help us to be receptive to whatever it is that you want to say to us tonight? And we pray all this for your glory. Amen. So to begin tonight, I'd like to start by showing you a uh, few photos, three in fact, photos of different people. And as you see each photo, I'd like you to think, what's the, what's the word that comes into your mind that you associate with this person? Okay, so don't say it out loud, because that would be awkward, but just ponder this in your head. So here's the first person. Lovely. Here's the second person. Marvelous. And here's the third person. Less well-known, that one. So the first person uh, to give him his full uh, title, his full name, is William Henry Gates III. Did you know that? Otherwise known as Bill to his friends and the rest of the world. Uh, he is the founder of Microsoft. He's a multi-billionaire. And together with his wife, Melinda, they have founded uh, the world's largest private foundation, uh, which aims to reduce global poverty and improve global health care. And one of the words that you may associate with Bill is wealth, and you may associate perhaps the word philanthropy, wealth and philanthropy. Mm. Uh, the second picture is, of course, Mother Teresa. Uh, Mother Teresa was a Roman Catholic nun. She devoted her life to serve the dying in the slums of Calcutta. And maybe the word that you associate with Mother Teresa is compassion or selflessness or even devotion. And the third person is someone who came to speak recently at Holy Trinity. Uh, his name is Robert Glover. He is father of six, he has six children, and uh, he's also the founder of a charity called Care for Children. And this charity aims to get children living in orphanages throughout Asia into foster families. Uh, in 2015, they'd managed to get 300,000 children in China out of state-run orphanages into families. And their aim is to get a million children across Asia into homes. And perhaps if you know Robert, um, the word that you might associate with him is family or care. Why am I showing you these people? Well, I think in order to understand the book of Job, we first need to understand the man about whom it is written. And I'd like you to imagine a man who embodies the characteristics of each of these people. Job's wealth was so vast that we read he was the greatest man in the East. The greatest man in the East. He had ten children of his own, seven sons and three daughters, that picture of perfection in the Bible. But his care and concern extended far beyond his own family. We read that he rescued the poor. He helped the fatherless. He was blessed by the dying. And he made the widow's heart sing. In fact, the greatest accolade we have of Job was given by God himself, who said, There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
That's the person that we are looking at tonight. So Job was a man who was immensely blessed, and he was an immense blessing to those around him. And then over two days, utter catastrophe strikes Job. He loses all his possessions. He loses all his wealth. He loses all his children to a natural disaster in one day. All 10 children he loses. And then he contracts a disease so putrid and so horrific that people are appalled to even look at him. He's so disgusting to see. His wife, after all this has happened, says to him, you should commit suicide. You should curse God and die. He's reviled by all those people he used to help. We read that the, the lowest of the low, the servant boys, looked at him and mocked him because his, he was so appalling to look at. And finally, at the lowest point of his life, when things couldn't get any worse, his four closest friends tell him that basically he's suffering because of something he's done. He's brought all this suffering on himself. That's what happens to Job. This is a picture of Job in my children's Bible. I don't know if we've got that to come up. Um, it's nicely graphic. Um, when I found this page, my son Toby leant over and looked at this picture and he says, that is a horrible story. And when I asked him why, he said, because God is so mean to Job. That's our gut reaction, isn't it? God is so mean to Job. We can take that down. Thank you. And for a long time, when I read the book of Job, I thought that that was Job's main complaint too. Why me, God? Why am I suffering? But actually, Job is not angry about the fact that he is suffering. Job is angry because he believes himself to be unjustly suffering. He feels he didn't deserve it. Let me explain a little bit more. In ancient Israel, when the book of Job was written, although Job himself lived much earlier, the traditional way that suffering and God was understood was that people suffered because they did something wrong. It was argued that because God was fully almighty and because he was fully just, therefore he could never let an innocent person suffer. So whenever anyone suffered, whenever their cow died or someone close to them got ill or they got ill themselves, it must be because of something they had done wrong. Why? Because God was just. He would never allow a righteous person to suffer. And actually, this view uh, about suffering was still around at the time of Jesus. Do you remember the disciples walking along? They saw a man blind from birth. And they turned to Jesus, and they didn't say, Jesus, what can we do to help this man? They said, well, come on, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Nicely pastoral. You see, they understood that suffering was a kind of curse from God. It was a consequence of misbehavior, of disobedience. And that's exactly what happened to Job. People saw his extreme suffering and assumed that Job must be to blame. And obviously, this caused huge problems for Job. Why? Because he knew he was innocent. He'd led an upright and righteous life. He'd cared for his family and the orphaned and the widowed. He'd worshipped the one true God. He'd done everything right. And yet that was why he found his so-called friend's counsel so horrific. They kept saying to him, well, you must have done something wrong, Job. God is just. He's not going to let you suffer if you're innocent. So quick, confess your sins. Confess whatever it is. God will forgive you and your suffering can end. But Job knew, just as we do reading the story, that he wasn't suffering because of anything he'd done. So Job's actual question is this. If God is completely just... And yet he's allowing me 
an innocent man to suffer, can I trust the justice of God? Or to put it more simply, can I trust God? Can I trust him with my life? Is God trustworthy? In the worst moments of my life, can I still trust that God knows what he's doing and is in control? That's a question I can relate to. Particularly because um, as a Christian, I, I think I've sort of subconsciously absorbed the idea that bad things shouldn't happen to me. Why? Well, I've prayed. I've given my life to God. I've committed to him. Surely that kind of warrants some divine protection against bad stuff happening. Jana um, gave an excellent sermon a few weeks ago, and she addressed this very point. And she said that we need to remind ourselves that Christians aren't immune from suffering. Quite the opposite, actually. Jesus promised us that in this world, while we're alive here, we will have trouble. There will be suffering. It's an inevitability. So the question is, how do we respond to suffering when it comes? And if I'm being honest, I think I find myself sometimes, like Job, saying when bad stuff happens, God, has my trust in you been misplaced? Are you still just? Are you still in control? And when we understand Job's question to be, can I trust you, God? God's response to Job makes a lot more sense. That's why, for example, when God finally shows up in chapter 38, he doesn't mention Job's sufferings once. Not once. He talks a lot about hippos and a lot about crocodiles, but he doesn't talk about Job's suffering. And that, you know, at best seems fairly unpastoral, and at worst seems indescribably cruel, doesn't it? This is a man in absolute agony, having lost everything, and God doesn't address initially his suffering. But what God does do is address the questions that Job is actually asking. If you are the just judge of the universe, why have you allowed me, a man of total integrity, to be treated with such injustice. If this is how you treat me, maybe you aren't fit to be a ruler after all. I'm not sure I can trust your judgment anymore. I'm not sure I can trust you anymore. So turn me back to chapter 38, if you will. Let's look a little bit at what God says to Job. In verse 3, God says this sort of alarming statement to Job. Picture in your mind, if you will, that image of Job lying on the ground, that cartoon image of him just covered in sores. And God says this to him, brace yourself like a man. That's fairly harsh. Brace yourself like a man. What's going on here? Well, in Hebrew, the words are actually better translated, gird your loins, which I'm aware may not be that helpful either to us. Gird your loins. Uh, a sort of better translation or a contemporary translation of gird your loins might be something like this. Get ready and prepare yourself for a hard task. Get ready and prepare yourself for a hard task. What's God doing here? He is honoring Job. He is not belittling him. He is not talking down to him. Instead, God is doing the very thing that Job's been crying out for for the, per for the previous 37 chapters. God is meeting Job. And facing him eyeball to eyeball and saying, I am here. God wants Job to realize two things. First of all, that he has complete knowledge. And second of all, that God has total power. And why does God want Job to know these things? 
Because knowing these things will enable Job to trust God again. Um, whenever I have a crisis, um, the person I generally phone, <laughs> occasionally to my husband's consternation, is my father. Um, why? Because unfailingly, my dad knows what to do. So if I'm driving along, and this happened um, a few years ago, and the little oil sign lit up in my car, the first thing I did was pull into a petrol station and ring my dad. I didn't know what kind of oil to buy or indeed where to put it, but my dad did and very carefully talked me through the steps. When we were having work done on our house and we weren't sure whether we trusted the builder's advice on a particular issue, who did we ring? We rang my dad. But last year, when I gripped a metal pan handle that had been roasting steadily in the oven, not to be recommended, incidentally, I didn't ring my dad. He was not the first person I called. Instead, I phoned, through much sobbing, my friend Adam. Why? Because Adam is a doctor. <laughs> Adam had the medical knowledge and the skills or the power to help me. Ringing my dad in that scenario wouldn't have accomplished very much. I would have got a bit of sympathy, but it wouldn't have helped me in my suffering. Adam was the only one who knew what to do and how to do it. He brought me comfort because I knew I could trust him. He was in control of that situation. He looked at it and said, yes, that's a third degree burn. You should go to A&E and this is how to keep your hand cool on the car on the way there. Very helpful. And this is exactly what God is seeking to show Job in response to his suffering. One of the main themes of Job is knowledge. So Job, quite a lot through the book, says things like, I know I am innocent. I know I'm innocent. And he also knows that God is just. Therefore, Job thinks, he knows that God must be failing as a just ruler. But in chapter 38, God shows Job by talking about creation that he actually far, far less than he thinks he does. In verse 4, God says to Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. In order to fully understand my ways, says God, you've got to have access to the bigger picture. And as you weren't there at the beginning of time, you don't. You don't. There is so much you don't know, Job. But guess what? I do. I know all these things. I was there at the beginning of creation, and I will be there at the end. I have complete, eternal knowledge of everything. I know these things. God goes on. Not only do you not have full knowledge of the situation in chapter 40, but you've also said that you'd do a better job of me than ruling the world. Okay then, Job, says God, take your throne. Use your power to bring about justice in the world. Verse 11, God says, unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. In other words, God's saying, do you have power to do these things? No? Well, I do. I do. In three rather terrifying chapters, God shows Job that he has neither the knowledge nor the power to fully be able to understand and question God's actions. Instead, all Job must do is trust that God is just and that he knows what he's doing. And that is the tough task. That's the hard task, isn't it? Why? 
Because trusting someone means relinquishing control. It means relinquishing control. So let's look at Job's response to this in chapter 42. And we're going to see how his prayer can help us in our prayers when we suffer. The first thing that Job does, this is in verse 2, is acknowledge that God is in control. He acknowledges that God is in control. He says, you can do all things. In his previous speeches, God quest- um, Job questions God's ability to run the world. He questions whether God has the power or the wisdom to deal with people justly. But once Job has seen a glimpse, just a glimpse of all that God can do, Job refuses to focus on a lie and instead focuses on the truth about God that he can do all things. When we suffer, it can be so tempting to question whether or not God cares about us or our suffering. But like Job here, we must refuse to focus on that lie and instead focus on the truth that God does see us, that he does care, and that he is in control no matter how things seem. And actually, by acknowledging who God is, Job was praising him. That's what Job's doing here, he's praising him. And I I have no doubt that this cost Job a huge amount to do this. It was very literally a sacrifice of praise, wasn't it? Job was sacrificing his right to know why. Job was sacrificing his right to be publicly vindicated. Job was sacrificing his perceived right to divine protection, even though he was an upright man. Job had to lay it down and lift up his hands and say, you are God and I am not, and I trust you. You can do all things. Job was praising God in the middle of his suffering. The second thing that Job does is that he acknowledges the bigger picture, that God has a vast plan for the universe as well as for him. This is again in verse 2. Job says, no plan of yours can be thwarted. When we suffer... It is helpful to remember that God has a plan. Job merely saw a little bit of God's plan. He saw God's plan for creation. But we, living after the cross, are privy to God's ultimate plan for the universe. And God's plan is this. Total restoration. A restoration of how things are meant to be. So that suffering and death and pain would not have the final word. That was why Jesus died on the cross. On the cross, the justice of God was fully satisfied. Jesus, a true innocent, wrongly suffered the guilt for our wrongdoing so that we never ever have to ask the question, am I suffering as some kind of payment or because of something I've done wrong? Whilst there may be consequences for our actions, no suffering we face is ever intended of some kind of divine repayment for our guilt. Why? Because Jesus has already repaid it fully. He's already paid the price for us. And that means also that when we look to the cross, we are given the definitive answers to the questions we so often ask in the middle of suffering. Do you care, God? Yes. Look at the cross. Do you love me? Yes. Look at the cross. Can I trust you in the darkest moments of my life? Yes. 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 So finally, after acknowledging that God is in control and that there is a bigger picture, 
Job repents of his previous accusations towards God. Have a look with me at verse 6. Now, in the NIV, it says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. But actually, in the Hebrew, that word myself isn't there. So a better translation might be, I despise my words, what I have said, my actions, and repent in dust and ashes. The word repent means to turn around, to change your opinion, to go a full 180, to go the other way. I was trying to think of a visual picture for Job doing this. And as I was thinking, one of my children ran past me to go outside. Uh, But as she did so, she tripped on the step leading outside. She fell headfirst into the patio. And I got up and I ran to her and I said, come here, darling, let mommy help. But she was so angry and hurt and she was in so much pain. Do you know what she did? She went, no, she pushed me away. and She just sat there sobbing. I just waited for a while, and eventually the sobs subsided a little bit. She turned and let me pick her up and comfort her. And I think that's a little bit of what Job is doing here. He's still angry, he's still hurting, and he's still upset. Remember, he's still suffering. He's not had the blessings after this yet. He's still right in the middle of the storm. But he's no longer directing those emotions at God. He's no longer blaming him. Instead, by repenting, by turning around, he is allowing himself to be comforted. He's still living with the tension of suffering, of not having all the answers, but he's turning towards God. And when we suffer, we need to turn to God instead of away from him. And sometimes that can be by repenting. To finish, I'd like to tell you about something that we do in our house each week. Every Friday, kids come home from school, and we sit on the sofa, and I make some popcorn, and we have family film night. Uh, And it's been great fun for me, because um, not only is it free childcare for an hour and a half, but also because um, we've been able to watch all of the old classics. I reckon we've rewatched every single Disney film ever made, and there are some bad ones, let me tell you. Now, here's the thing. When I am watching these films, I don't get particularly emotionally involved. Um, I might chuckle occasionally, but I'm not weeping uncontrollably or hiding behind a cushion. Why? Because I've seen them before. I know the ending. It's all good. But my children, they don't know what happens. They're watching it for the first time. And for my son in particular, sometimes the tension is just too much. The other night we were watching Toy Story 1. Can you imagine that far back? The first ever Toy Story made. And there's a scene where the main characters, which are toys, Buzz and Woody, they're on a roller skate. And they're trying desperately to get back to their owner, Andy. And the power in the roller skate is failing. And you don't know if they're going to make it. And the car with Andy in it is going further and further away. And at this point, my son, Toby, gets up and runs out of the room. And I said, Toby, what's the matter? From the other room, he shouted, I don't like it. What if they don't make it? And this is what I said. This is what I said. It's okay, darling. I've seen the end of the film. I know what happens. I promise you, it will be all right. I'm going to sit here with you through it, and you'll see that it all ends well. That it all ends well. 
Like Job, we will suffer in this life. But just as God said to Job, so too God is saying to us, I'm still in control. I'm still on the throne. I can be trusted. I know the ending. I know the ending. I'm going to walk this painful road with you, and I promise you, I promise you it all ends well. I am the Alpha and Omega. I was there at the beginning, and I'll be there at the end. Suffering and death do not have the last word. I do. It all ends well. Let's take a moment to pray. The band are going to come up, and then we're just going to have a song where we just maybe respond to God. But let's just take a moment to pray first of all. Let me just pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, thank you that you are Alpha and Omega. You are the beginning and the end. And thank you that you can be trusted. No matter what storms we are in, you can be trusted. As I was praying um, about this sermon, I had two pictures, and I just wonder if they might be for some people here. The first picture I had was of someone um, in the middle of really intense suffering. And I had the picture of someone sort of almost bent over, unable to even stand because they were suffering so much. They were overwhelmed. And the picture I had was of Jesus coming alongside you, this person, and putting a large, heavy blanket over them and just drawing drawing him to himself, drawing you to himself. That was the first picture. And the second picture I had was of someone who was also looking down, who's also suffering. But in this picture, Jesus came alongside and, and encouraged the person to look up and to look into the distance. And Jesus was pointing and smiling and saying, over there, that's where you're heading. That's where you're heading. What you're experiencing now won't last forever. And if there for anyone here tonight, I'd love to pray with you, maybe during this song. But we're now going to have a song of worship and response.